verses 19b through 23. So if you'll stand as we read God's holy word today. Ephesians 1, 19b through 23. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the holy word of God has been proclaimed to you. May you have the ears to hear it today. Please have a seat. I don't know. I, I'm sure a lot of you, I've heard Buffalo is, is a foodie city. Everybody has very discerning tastes here in the congregation. So I'm sure you would never go to Taco Bell. But for those of you that have, that visited those hollow halls of Taco Bell, you've noticed that the menu is always changing. That's kind of their thing. That they always have some sort of novelty food on the menu every single week. And it's more unhealthy than the last thing that they put up there. But there's always one part of the menu that never changes. And that's the taco. They always have the tacos. That's at the core of their menu. Back in college, we loved Sundays. Not just because we got to go to church, but because Taco Bell would have 25-cent taco Sundays. And being poor college students, we would load up, you know, 30 tacos. Yes, I would like 30 tacos. And we would bring them back. And by Wednesday, those tacos looked really sad in our fridge. But, but we loved them. Tacos are great. But for those of us that the 1%, right, that we're really rich and we have an extra quarter or two in our pocket... We can go and not just get a taco. We can splurge on a Taco Supreme. Oh, Taco Supreme. That's a phrase that gives me goosebumps. This sounds really loud, by the way. Uh, it, it's a, a thought of grandeur of a taco, the goodness of a taco elevated to something even greater. And you think, you think on those two words of a, a supreme taco, of what gourmet feast you're about to get when you order that. I always feel like I'm just in the lap of luxury. Anytime I roll up to a Taco Bell, I said, yes, I like two Taco Supremes. And that Supreme was going to be mine and my alone. Of course, what happens? You get home, you unwrap, and you find out that that Taco Supreme is just a normal taco with a couple little diced tomatoes and a dollop of sour cream on it. And at that point, you start to get the feeling that the Taco Bell marketing team might be abusing the word supreme. That is not a supreme taco. That's barely a plus-size taco. It's not, it's not a good taco. And I don't think that word supreme is something we really understand very well either. I think we might either abuse it or we just don't use it at all. Especially when we talk about Christ being supreme. When we say that, I fear that some of us might be just thinking that Jesus Christ is a normal person with a few extra toppings. A little bit extra special, but nothing great. But with the word supreme, 
when we really look at it, means it's superior to all else that exists. That it is above all else that exists. And so when we call Christ supreme, we are putting Him on a level on which there is nothing else up there. And Christ's supremacy is what Paul prays about here as we look at the very final verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Today I want us to look at three ways that Christ is supreme and what that supremacy means for our lives, what it practically means for our lives today. So let's look at that. Last week we prayed about, or Paul, we read about Paul's attempt to portray the immense power of God. Do you remember that? How he was tripping over himself with four synonyms, just trying to get this overall idea of God's great power. And then Paul says, and that power is yours. It's got your back. It's there for you every day. But that same power, this incomparable power of God, of the Spirit, is what raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That was his greatest act. The greatest display of that power was to take a lifeless body and to infuse into it life, to bring it back to life. And when Christ was resurrected, he just didn't just come back in the form of a spirit. But he came back in his full incarnation. He said to Thomas, he said, touch me. I'm not just a spirit. I'm also physical. Touch my hands. Touch my side. You can see that I am real. And it's this incarnated Christ that was risen to heaven, that ascended to the throne, where Christ sits bodily on the throne in heaven today. And that's really important for our future when we think that Christ is supreme over death, that he rules over death. Paul says right here, if you got your Bibles open, that he says that Christ was raised from the dead. That indicates for us that this resurrection, as incredible as it was, as miraculous as it was, wasn't a one-time affair. It wasn't something supposed to be unique. It was the first of a coming wave of resurrections that were to happen. That Jesus Christ was the first fruits, the forerunner. He says, what happened to me will also happen to those who have fallen asleep in me. In fact, if you look at um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul later writes that Christ has been indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This metaphor of just falling asleep, it's not so harsh, is that? Each in turn, Paul writes, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. It's this order of resurrection. Christ resurrected first, and then those who have fallen asleep in him, those who belong to him. Because Christ was supreme over death, we know a resurrection is possible. Because he was resurrected in bodily form and went to heaven in that form, we know it is possible to be given a new body that can go to heaven. And because Christ is trustworthy, we can believe in this promise he has that he will also resurrect us in the same way that he was resurrected. It's a great promise for us for the future. There was once a man who was driving with his kids on a a snowy winter day, which I think in Buffalo is in about two weeks, right? So just think of that. He was driving on a snowy day and They stopped at an intersection, and as they waited at that intersection, a truck drove by. And it was right toward the end of the day, so the sun cast a long shadow, and the kids watched as this long 
shadow traveled over the snow field in back of the truck. And the dad said, aha, here's an object lesson. Here's a, a teaching opportunity. He said, kids, look at that truck. Look at that shadow. Which would you rather be hit by, the truck or the shadow? And the kids took a moment to deliberate in the back seat, and they went, the, the shadow? The shadow, Dad. We'd like to be hit by the shadow. And he said, exactly. He said, that's right. He said, kids, death is a truck. Death is that truck. But for us, as Christians, we only get hit by the shadow. Jesus got hit by the truck. That's what he does for us. He lessens death. He pulls back death's sting for us so that all we're hit by is the shadow. Now, I don't want to downplay it too much because death is not a small thing in this world. It's sometimes our most bitter enemy in this earth. But what Paul is pointing out here is that because Christ is supreme over death, we don't have to live in fear of our death. We don't have to live in fear of that day when the truck comes because we know Christ has taken this more serious blow for us and that for us it will be the greatest day of our lives. Now, while the greatest display of God's power came at the resurrection, I would argue that the greatest moment of Christ's life was not his resurrection, but rather his ascension to the throne in heaven. We don't think about that enough. We don't talk about that nearly enough in the church. But his ascension to heaven was just an incredible homecoming of the king. It's a parade. But for us, we kind of get this perspective from the apostles looking up from earth. And that's what we see in Luke 24, is this perspective of Jesus leaving us from the, the, from the perspective of the disciples. He said this in Luke, said, when Jesus had led them out into the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands, he blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And the Bible says, and then the disciples returned, praising God with great joy. Now that's their perspective as they watched Jesus leave. I hope they got the full blessing. That's what I think. You know, he just lifted his hands up. I hope it wasn't mid-blessing. But what was that perspective like? For Jesus' ascension, for those who were in heaven, what was it like for the angels? What was it like for God as the Son returned to take the throne? And I think that's what we get right here in Ephesians 1. So we get this heavenly perspective that upon arriving in heaven, the Father seated the Son at the, His right hand. That's what it says. He seated the Son at His right hand. And that is a metaphor for a position, a supreme position of the highest authority, the highest power, the highest glory that Jesus could possibly have. It's this metaphor of the right hand. It makes me think about how the author of Hebrews said, of which of the angels was it ever written that he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool at your feet. Those words sound familiar. That comes from Psalms when we went through the Psalms. When Jesus took the throne of heaven, there was no higher place that he could go. There was no job that he could apply to to get up even further. No rung that he could step higher up to. When he arrived back in heaven, it was the greatest moment of his life because he was coming home in glory he had accomplished, perfectly accomplished. 
the mission of the Father, the will of the Father. He had come home in that perfection. Everybody's cheering him, and he takes the throne in heaven, and he sits there in glory even to this day. And it's there that he wants to give us some hope for our lives right now. Now, as we turn to the election season here in America, I think we're going to get assaulted with slogans. And I was thinking about, a lot about presidential slogans lately, about what the, there's a common theme that seems to run through a lot of them. About half of them are, my opponent is scum, but the other half have kind of a common theme. And I want you to listen to some of these famous presidential slogans and see if you can hear what that theme is. You remember Ronald Reagan's 1984 presidential slogan? Does anybody remember it? It's morning again in America. That was this great, it's probably one of my favorite slogans right there. Herbert Hoover in 1928, for those of us that were around back then, his slogan was, um, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. It's an image of prosperity, right? Yeah, FDR, they, they hijacked the lyrics to that song, happy days are here again. You know, that was, that was their slogan. Uh, in 2016, Donald Trump's slogan, very famous, Make America Great Again. Barack Obama's 2008 slogan, Change We Can Believe In. All of these slogans, I read through a lot of slogans this past week, and I saw this common theme that kept coming up again and again, which was the candidate wanted to give people out there hope in the future. This, this idea of prosperity, this idea of if you vote for me, if you only just vote me into power, I will make your future better. For better or for worse, right? But real hope, real hope is in scarcity in 2020. When we look around, we look at a world that's been hurt. We look at a world that's on its knees, that's struggling and staggering from many directions, and we go, I don't know if anybody we elect to the office in 2021 will be able to deliver real hope for our future. And I want to be daring and slightly political and say, I, I don't think we could elect anybody in the world that could tr offer us real hope. I think the only real hope we can ever get is in the one who is supreme over all, has the universe under his hands, and ordains every single thing that comes to pass. That's the only real hope that we have. In fact, in John 17, Jesus says, I want to give them real hope. He prays this. He's praying it for you. This is his very famous prayer for all believers. And during this prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they may be with me so that they can see my glory. That's his prayer for you. His greatest prayer is that you will be able to ultimately be with him to see his glory so that you can know with complete certainty that our Lord is supreme over the universe. Our Lord is supreme over everything. And when you behold his glory, you have real hope in your future. You know that every day that you will be living with him from then on out will be a day full of hope, full of wonder, full of grace, full of love. It will just be a joy. And that's what he wants for you. So vote for whoever you want. I'm not here to tell you that. Vote for whoever you want in November, but make Jesus the real object of your hope. Center your life around him 
and he will not let you down. Now, in the final words of the prayer here, Paul concludes his reflection on the supremacy of Christ by looking at how it relates to the church. As Jesus himself says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, those famous words, and we might, not, we might have heard them so many times, we started to lose the flavor of them. But when he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been granted to me. That's, that's a sermon for another day, but that is a momentous occasion where he says, finally, all authority has been granted to me. Prior to that, who had authority over the earth? The devil did. Jesus takes it away. Remember the devil said, I can give you all authority over all the kingdoms of the world? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to get it from your hand. I'm going to get it the right way. But the question I want to bring to you today is, what does Christ do with that authority? Now that he has all authority over everything on heaven and on earth, over the spiritual and physical realms, what does he do with that authority? Well, that's, the, that's what it says right here in verse 22. Still have your Bibles open. Paul says right here, he answers this question. He says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Those are some very important words there. Jesus is head over the church, yes, but his great love for the church means he's not just ruling it from afar, he's not subjugating it for his own needs, but he's head over the church, he's supreme over the church for the church, for our benefit. He takes all of his authority and he bends it for the benefit of his beloved bride, the church. He loves us so much that he's channeled all of history, all of the world, all of nature, so that it benefits his bride, so that it benefits us. Think of all the persecution the church has seen over the centuries. Think of how much oppression has been against Christians, and yet the church thrives, the church endures. And why is that? Because Christ is bending everything uphold the church. It's what, why Paul, uh, Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, he says, on this rock I will build my church. I will do the heavy work. I will build the church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's the authority of the universe speaking right there. That is Christ supreme saying, I will uphold the church and nothing, the entire universe, nothing, hell itself, can't throw itself against my church and destroy it because that's my bride. And I'm going to stick up for my bride and I'm going to bend everything for that. In fact, when you look back at history, kind of interesting, when we look at the early church, we might get this impression from Paul that there were just missionaries streaming out of Jerusalem like crazy. Paul was a rarity. In fact, until about 70 AD, very few Christians left Jerusalem the church was very content to stay put. We're comfortable. We're creatures of habit. That's what we do. So they had their houses. They had their church. They were fine with that. But then, in 70 AD, something happened, something very significant. The Roman army came down to put down a rebellion and destroy Jerusalem. It, they leveled it to the ground. There was a great holocaust, huge tragedy. But a byproduct of this was that the Christians who lived in Jerusalem scattered to the wind. And they brought the message of the gospel all across the world. And that really was when the church exploded. 
Paul was about, out and about planting churches, but really 70 AD was when the church erupted over the whole world. Even through that great tragedy, and it was a great tragedy, Christ was supreme over the church, and he worked history to benefit the church, to bring the gospel to those who didn't have it before. And it's at the end of Ephesians 1 that Paul goes on. He says, my church is also my body. It's the first time in this book that he references the church as being the body and himself as the head. And it's this idea of having two parts that are in union together, different but complementary, working together for a unified purpose. Remember this theme of uh, Paul saying that God will bring all things under, under unity under Christ Jesus. And so the head and the church are together, and they benefit each other. When you have a head and a body joined together, good things happen. When you have a body without a head, you end up flapping around a chicken coop for a little while before falling over as a dead bird. The body needs the head. And when we're together, it's incredible. And as the body of Christ, we share in Christ. Again, this theme of being in Christ. What is true for Christ is true for us. We share in his death and his suffering. In fact, that's a main point of what we're going to be partaking when we partake of communion in just a few moments. We are partaking in the death and suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are sharing in that. But we also share in his ascension. We share in his glory. We share in his status, and we are there in heaven with him spiritually. It's very intimate. And it's a great honor that one who is supreme over the church has chose to bind himself to the church in a very intimate way. He calls himself our bride, my body. Christian author Dan Bernard once wrote, he said, do you remember when you used to go like to a zoo or a petting zoo or somewhere where they'd have those weird cutouts that you'd put your head in and they're usually like a muscly man or a bathing beauty or a clown or something ridiculous. And he said you would take a picture and then you kind of get a chuckle out of it because the head would never match the body. He said, now imagine if somebody could come to your local body of believers, and they would look at them, would the body match the head, or would it be a ridiculous mismatch? Would people look at us and then look at Christ and say, praise God, that human body so perfectly complements that divine head. Christ is not just supreme over the church. He is supreme for the church. And as his body, we need to act like it. We need to mirror Christ in all we say and do so that when people look at us, we are reflecting the head. We are the body that points to the Christ. So when we look at Christ and we see how he is triumphant over death, he is king over all creation, he is head over all the church, we have to start coming to the grips of this thought that maybe Christ is also supreme over us as well. Maybe he's supreme over my life. And that is going to be a battle for you. It's a battle for all of us. Because even if we're saved, we still have sin inside of us. And that sin pushes back against authority. It kicks against the idea of a Lord over our life. And we say, I want to be boss over myself. I want to say what I can do, and I want to limit 
God in my life and Christ says, no, if I am to be supreme over you, that means over every aspect of your life. Let me in. Let me be supreme. And I will help root out this rebellion in you. I'm going to help extract that sin so that more and more we can come into perfect alignment with Christ. We can come into that union, that spiritual union. We're no longer we're fighting against His authority, but rather we're praising it. We're trusting in it. We're celebrating it. We have this, uh, this joy in our hearts as He tenderly guides and teaches us because we know He wants what's best for us. And we know that we have a Christ who is supreme over everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we try to look at your supremacy today, I know we're just getting but a taste of it here in Ephesians 1. But I pray that we would never take you for granted, that we would not take the fact that you allow us to address you so intimately as a friend, as a confidant. We wouldn't take this for granted and and suddenly not be reverent toward you as well. Lord, help to open our eyes. Help us to see you as you truly are, as glorious, as great, as powerful, as supreme. Lord, I pray that we would understand what that means for our lives too, that we follow one who is victorious, one who has complete control over all. Lord, who even has conquered death itself. Death, where is its sting, the Bible says doesn't have a sting anymore because we have a Christ who died, who was resurrected, and then turned around and said, and I'm going to do the same for you. Lord, we praise you for that. In your name.